comes to lead us this morning. last time I preached um, was right before uh, everything kind of shut down, and I preached on uh, the Sabbath um, and rest, and I was just kind of wondering, you know, <laughs> I, was kinda, I thought it was kind of timely on rest, and then everything stopped in the world, and I was like, wow, you know, I didn't know. W- so be careful what I'm preaching on today, because think about whatever I'm preaching on today, the rest of the world is going to take note. Um, well, for those of you that don't know, uh, we're moving in the next week-ish. Uh, we're moving out a little bit further away, um, out, out ways west. Uh, so obviously still going to be here. Nothing's changing with church. But we were already supposed to be moved. Um, we found out at the beginning of June that our date was going to be pushed further out. It was supposed to be the 10th, and then it got pushed further out to next week, and now it's even further out. Like, it's just all, all these things happening. It's complicated, but, you know, we're rolling with it, doing what we can. Um, and uh, we're supposed to be out of our house on June 14th. So the closing date was the 10th. We were supposed to be gone by June 14th. That's what we were told at the very beginning of June, or uh, in the middle of May. So, but then things got pushed, everything got changed, and, you know, we rolled through. We hadn't made any, any changes or anything like that. Well, on June 14th at 8.30 in the morning, I'm taking a shower, and uh, the power goes out. And, um, and I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking, you know, our power goes out. It just it happens to go out normally. Like, it's, it's kind of, it's, it, it happens when the wind blows, like, a little hard, the, the power goes out. So I just thought nothing of it. Finished taking a shower. Come downstairs. My, my wife, Sarah, had texted our neighbors. Hey, are you home? They weren't home, so we texted another neighbor. And um, they said, no, our power's still on. Okay, that's weird. So I go outside, and I look next door, and their outside light's still on because it's still morning. They haven't turned it off yet. And I was like, oh, man, what's going on? what's happening and I start thinking about it and I'm like was this the day we were supposed to be out and then I go but we never call like we never call I never called the electric company to like switch or anything like that so I call my electric company and so goes like many hours of being on the phone with multiple people the whole ordeal of trying to figure out why is my electricity turned off and it turns out that way back when the people who were buying our house had put in the change before we got before we got moved. They were going to come in, change it on the 14th. And um, so when the date changed, I guess they called the company and said, oh, we're not doing it. We don't need it to be turned on anymore that day. But it ne- the, the notice to turn it off never got canceled, right? So the move in got canceled, but the move out didn't get canceled. So I'm calling my electric company. They're like, we're not your provider. And we're not the provider for that um, address anymore. You need to call so-and-so. Okay, so I call the other company. It's like, we have no record of anything at your house. Uh, you know, w- I, I pull it up. I say, we, I see we can service you, but th- uh, there's nothing there. And I, I called our realtor. Hey, did they happen to do this? And they're like, no, we didn't do it. And then I got a text later. Oh, yeah, they actually did do it. There was a miscommunication. But they said it was canceled. And I'm calling Centerpoint trying to figure out, like, you know, they're the middleman, right? Well, we can't do anything until we get notice from the other company that it needs to go back to the your company. And I'm just I'm calling everyone, and everybody everybody every everybody is telling me to do something different. You need to call this person. You need to do this, and nothing they're telling me is making sense. You need to get this kind of order. You need to call, and I can't tell you how many times I kept telling the person on the phone. I was like. You are my provider. Oh, you need to call your provider to get it turned. I'm like, you, I'm t- I've been talking to you for 30 minutes. 
Do you not understand? You are my provider. I don't, I, this doesn't make any sense to me. So it was just a whole ordeal. Someone said, oh, it'll be two to four hours. Then I talked to somebody else. Oh, it may be 24 to 48 hours before we can get it back on. Meanwhile, it's 100 degrees outside at noon, right? And uh, I'm just, I'm sitting here, we're, we're freaking out and I'm taking my kids over to my mother-in-law's house so that they can at least be in AC. And it's this whole thing. And I did what they told me to do. It didn't make any sense. I would call this person. No, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, call this. And I finally told him, I said, what you're telling me makes no sense to me. This is what's happening, but you're giving me instructions that do not make sense. Finally, I call our energy broker. Okay, so we use a, a company called Energy Ogre that, like, shops for us or whatever. I called them, and I said, here's what happened. And he says, I will have it on within the next few hours. He's like, I have a contact over there. He was like, I said, well, that said it could take 24 to 40. He's like, no. He laughed on the phone. He was like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. I'll have it on. I'll call you as soon as I have confirmation. Sure enough, he called me about two hours later. He said, could be on. And then it was on. It was on, like, within that. It was so quick. So it was so frustrating this whole time. And finally, somebody did something that made sense to me. Um, I hate being asked to do something that doesn't make any sense. Following procedures, following protocols, that when you look at them, you go, this makes no sense. This doesn't make any sense to me. You know, whether it's an authority, it's, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, parents, teachers, any kind of, any kind of thing like that, um, you look at a process and you say that's either inefficient or ineffective, right? That's maybe what you think. You know, you go to the DPS office or you go to any kind of government office or large corporation, and it's like, okay, well, here, fill out this TPS report, take it upstairs, right? This has got to go to uh, the administration office, and then they need to send it to somebody else, and that's got to go to operations. Then operations has to approve it, and then when it comes back down, then we'll be able to have the meeting so that you can see what we're going to, you know, how we're going to serve you and how we're going to solve your problem. And it's like these things happen. It doesn't make any sense. Kids, do you ever feel like your parents make you do things that don't make any sense? Your parents are looking up here, so you can be honest with me, okay? Um, <laughs> yes, uh, parents, when you were a kid, I'm sure you felt the same way, right? Uh, why do I have to make my bed? I'm just going to, what, sleep in it again. Why should I make it? I'm going to mess it up again. Uh, why, do, why do I have to go to bed at this time? There's, I have nothing to do tomorrow, right? It's summer. Why do, why do I have to have a bedtime? Um, you know, do you, why do I have to do this chore? Why do I have to eat this? Why do I have to, whatever it may be, it doesn't make any sense to you. To us parents, it makes sense. We know why we're asking them to make their bed. Because we said so, that's why. But, uh, no, but the, I mean, you know, we're trying to build character. We're trying to keep the house tidy, right? Like, in our minds, it's like, well, sometimes clutter messes with us. So I need that made so that I'm not thinking about it. That your bed is not made and your room is trash, right? Um, it's, it's helping you to create good habits. We know why we're doing that. Sometimes kids don't understand that. We've all been places and have had to do things that don't make sense. But we have to follow them. Sometimes we just have to do it. Sometimes it's because an authority has told us we need to do it, and we respect that authority. It's a parent. It's a boss. It's a, an organization. It's a government, you know, whatever that may be. Sometimes it's good reasons. Sometimes it's not good reasons. But it's something we all live through, and we're going to continue to live through. We have to do things that don't make sense to us in life. And even the Bible, right? I mean, God's word, we look at it, and we see in the scriptures many times what the Bible tells us to do doesn't seem to make sense to worldly standards. Or even to our standards, we're Christians, and we're like, it still doesn't make sense to me. But we trust it because we believe the author is good, and he's trustworthy, and, 
And it may not make sense to me, but, uh, you know, he has my good and his glory in mind. And today we're looking at a prophet. We're at majors and the minors. We're going to be looking at a prophet that had to do something that didn't make any sense at all. Zero sense. Uh, We're going to look at something that was such a peculiar situation that many of us would look at it and go, "Mm, really, really, God told you to do that? Are you are you serious? We're gonna we've been in this uh, majors and the minors and catch you up if you didn't get a chance to listen to the first sermon Pastor John did to kind of introduce it. The minor prophets, some co- sometimes called the twelve um, prophets, are the last twelve books of the Old Testament. We have the major prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are the five books of the major prophets. Then you have twelve minor prophets. And they're not minor. I have to constantly remind myself of this. They're not minor because of the message. The messages are just as important as the major prophets. The only reason they're called minor is because they're small. They're shorter. So uh, you have these big, long books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you have all these small little prophets, and they put them all together and call them the minor prophets simply because they're shorter. Their messages are no less important than the message of Isaiah or the message of Jeremiah, or the message of Daniel, okay? Ezekiel. So a lot of times because they're called minor prophets, I think we tend to neglect them a little bit. I know that's kind of been my MO. I've neglected, I don't read them as much as I read, you know, the New Testament or other Old Testament narratives and books. But also because sometimes they're kind of hard to read. Prophetic books in the Bible are kind of hard to read. Like there's a lot of imagery and figurative language and poetry and prophetic language and all this stuff. And sometimes it can be, be really hard to read. So Pastor John and I and Lance, as we were looking at this, we thought, hey, that might be a cool exercise to kind of walk through the minor prophets together, get an overview of each one, uh, share that with our church, help us to kind of beef up on those a little bit as well. It's going to cause us to, to have to study more than we probably have in the past. And um, today we're going to be uh, looking at the prophet Hosea prophet Hosea, okay, so um, we're going to see what these men of God are saying to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Judah, what it means today, and we've looked at Jonah, we've looked at Amos, and today we're at the prophet Hosea, and Hosea is a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, okay, Hosea is a prophet to Israel, Uh, just quick history on Hosea, message written in the later half of the 8th century, um, and we see this just from Hosea 1.1. He talks about the kings that are ruling. And don't, don't just again, a little history lesson if you're not very familiar with this, um, the major and the minor prophets. We had a unified kingdom of Israel, right? Under King Saul, under King David, and under King Solomon, there was one big nation of Israel. And then after Solomon, it splits. splits into two. They, they start rebelling, and in the northern kingdom, ten tribes go, and they take the name Israel with them. Okay, so at this point, Israel is the northern kingdom, not the whole kingdom, but it's the northern kingdom. And then Judah, two, two, uh, two tribes go south, Judah and a smaller tribe, and they take the name Judah, which is just the larger tribe. So now you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, and uh, Jerusalem's the capital of Judah. And Samaria is the capital of Israel. That's kind of how it lasted. And then throughout all the kings and chronicles and all these prophets, that's what's happening here. These two are kind of fighting a lot, and they're fighting other people, and they're just not unified. It's called the divided kingdom. And most of the prophets were to Judah, were to the southern kingdom. 
which was typically had a few better kings than the northern kingdom have had a, the northern kingdom mostly had really bad kings judah had a lot of bad kings but a few good kings and um few were prophets to Ju- to israel most were prophets to judah and some were even prophets to like other places like jonah was a, was a prophet was the story of a prophet to nineveh right like that was a different area as well so this is hosea the prophet to israel and like amos just like Amos, he's a prophet to Israel. Amos was a prophet to Israel, too. But unlike him, Amos came from Judah and traveled north. Hosea is from Israel. He lived there. He lived in that region. So he's a prophet to his own people, if that makes sense. So he's coming kind of as a local, as somebody who lives there, who understands what's going on in that, in that area. He speaks as a native. And he has a similar message of judgment and repentance. But instead of speaking as kind of like this person coming from the south, he speaks as one of them. He's speaking as one of them. And unlike Amos, who had a message to deliver, Hosea doesn't, isn't just asked to deliver a message. He's asked to live one out. He's asked to live out his message as a real-life parable um, in order to, to, to show this message of God to a people. He's asked to do something that doesn't make any sense. Zero sense. And um, while Amos, last week, if you listen to the, pe- the sermon or you read through Amos, Amos is concerned about injustice in Israel. That's his main, uh, his main concern. There were other problems, but his concern was the injustices that, that he was seeing in Israel. Um, Hosea is more concerned with the religious idolatry that's happening in Israel. So they're both issues. Amos has a, di- has a different message. Hosea is tackling kind of this other side of the coin, this religious idolatry that is taking place in Israel. It's running rampant. Here's what's going on at this time. The worship of a false god named Baal, B-A-A-L, you may have heard that, that name before, was the main offense that Israel was worshiping a false god. And specifically, it was this ritual immora- uh, immorality, not immortality, immorality um, that they were doing. It was fornic- they, were, they were engaging in fornication ritually to appease this god. The people of Israel would participate infertility rituals with women at the temple. That's what they would go do. And they would do this in worship so that Baal, who was the fertility god, would respond in the same way. They're like, we're going to participate in this fertility ritual so that the gods, the false god Baal, will, will make our land fertile. So that was their, that was their thinking, right? Like that's, that's kind of, he would respond, the gods would respond in like manner. And they're committing adultery, not just, you know, in the, in the realest sense, not just physically, but spiritually, they're committing adultery. And that's what this whole book is about. This whole message of Hosea is about the spiritual adultery that Israel has been engaged in. And God calls Hosea, this prophet, to enter into a real-life parable to illustrate this message. So we're going to jump in, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. So we're going to start, we're going to spend our time mainly in the first three chapters. And we're going to see how this plays out. And when the Lord began to spoke through speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Uh, Come again, Chad. What are you asking me to do? You're asking me to do what? This this makes no sense to me. But it happened. It actually happened, and it, ha- it happened a few other times. Similar things would happen 
prophets would sometimes live out symbolic gestures as the message, like to drive home the message even further, right? Like we use, in a sermon, sometimes we'll use illustrations that we're like object lessons and stuff. This is like a really important, like permanent life, like object lesson, right? He's asking him to live out this message where God asks, I think he asks Jeremiah to do something similar, to live out these extraordinary things in order to make the point. He tells Hosea, go marry this woman. This woman's going to be unfaithful to you because Israel has been unfaithful to God. And he's going to live out an illustration of what's happening between Israel and He's going he's gonna to live this out. So he does it. He, he does what he says. The next verse says, verse 3, it says, So he married Gomer, that's her name, Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So, and the way the, the rest of the story plays out, it seems like she was faithful at the very beginning. Like she was, she was faithful to him at the very beginning. But then things start kind of falling apart later, okay? We, we read in the rest of this chapter that she ends up having three children. The first one, it says she bore him a son. And then the next two, it's implied that they are not his children. That she has been unfaithful to him, and she has two more children that are not his. And they're born from other, other men in her unfaithfulness. And, and get this, I, w- I want you to see here what God tells Hosea to name them, okay? Read what he says in verse 6. So Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo Ruhama, which means not loved. It could also mean not mercy, like no mercy. That's another translation. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. He's talking about Judah. He's giving a little hint of what's going to happen with the southern kingdom. And then verse 8, after she had weaned Lo Ruhama, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, call him Lo Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Man, can you imagine <laughs> naming your kids these things, right, like symbolic? Na- we talk about in the Old Testament, especially there's these names that mean things. And Hosea is living out, this family is now living out an illustration of what the nation of Israel and how, uh, of, what they, of what they've done and how they've lived in their relation to, to Israel. You've strayed. You've turned to false gods. You've become unfaithful to your bridegroom, right? You were my people, and now you're not. You were loved, but now you're not. You were shown mercy, but now you will not be shown mercy. And God isn't bluffing, okay? There have been times where God said, like, he's going to do something, and then he relents. This doesn't happen. In a few decades after this, the Assyrians come in, and they wipe Israel out, and everybody gets exiled. And then eventually Judah would get exiled too. Everybody, everybody uh, um, gets scattered and the nation gets taken over and they get, they get taken away. But it's not the end of the story. Judgment is not the end of the story and it never is with God. It never is in the Bible. Judgment, this kind of discipline, this destruction is never the end of the story. And here's the point I want us to look at today as we learn from the book of Hosea. If you take away something, it's this. Israel's unfaithfulness isn't enough to exhaust God's great love. Israel's unfaithfulness isn't enough to exhaust God's great love for his people. No matter what Israel would do, no matter how unfaithful they were going to be to the Lord, it would never exceed God's love, his great love for them. 
And, and, and he tells us in the next verses, God gives us a glimpse into what's going to happen. In verse 10, right after this, yet, right, but the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And that was the first verse, actually. So in the same breath, God recalls the covenant that he made with Abraham. You go back in Genesis 12. This is the language that Abraham, that God gives to Abraham. Your, your descendants are going to be like what? Like the stars in the sky and like the sand. There's going to be so many. And he says it again. They're going to be like the sand on the seashore. This is what's going to come at the end. This is what the final, the kind of the final thing is going to be. This is what's going to come from the discipline. This is what's going to come from their unfaithfulness and from their disobedience. Because it wasn't enough to nullify the promises God made to Abraham and his descendants. And guess what? You're descendants too. If you're a Christian, you're a descendant of Abraham, Paul tells us in the book of Romans. Your unfaithfulness isn't enough to nullify those promises. They would eventually make their way from not my people to children of the living God. And it wouldn't be anything that they would do. It would be in spite of actually what they've done. It would be in spite of their disobedience. It would be the work of God because of his great love for them. And God's using Hosea to bring home this point. Once again, God's people have been joined together as his bride, as a bride and 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 a groom, as a husband and wife. There's a lot of different illustrations on God's uh, 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 illustrations and word pictures that the Bible uses to compare God's people and him. And one of the big ones is that of the bride and the groom. We see that in the New Testament, right? Paul calls the church the bride of Christ. They, and what he's saying here is saying, it's not, you have it, it's not that you're just going to worship other gods. This gods, this is what you're doing. You're committing spiritual adultery. Think about how you would feel if this was a relationship you had with a husband and wife. That's how big of a deal this is. And even bigger. Their sin, their idolatry is a transgression against the marriage covenant between them and God. It's against that. It's a defiling of their union. When they would go and worship other idols and false gods and engage in despicable acts, they're like the unfaithful wife who's committed adultery against her husband. And in chapter 2 of, of this, this, uh, this book of Hosea, Hosea starts using this legal language. It's so interesting. If you go look at it and kind of do some research on it, it's language that would have been used in court to bring charges against a wife for her unfaithfulness and basically saying, here's why we're getting a divorce. Here's the grounds for our legal divorce. You've done all these things. And he uses that kind of language in Hosea chapter 2. God does against Israel. He talks about how God is going to deal with Israel in discipline, and it's not good. Like, there's a lot of colorful language in here. You should go read it. It's very, very interesting. We're not going to get into it, into the first part. But in, ch- in 14, in verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, we see a beautiful picture of God's great love for his people. Because Hosea reveals that God's plan is not to divorce Israel. That would be right for him to do. That would be legal for him to do. 
God would have the right to cut Israel off, but that's not his plan. He's going to restore his marriage with her. Verse 14, therefore, right, all of this stuff, all of these judgments that I'm bringing on you, therefore, because of all of this, I am now going to allure her. Woo. Think of that term, woo, I'm going to woo her. I will lead her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Achor was where? If you remember the story, Achan, and that's where he was cursed. So this place of, of, of a curse is now going to become a place of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. We'll unpack that in just a second. I will remove the names of the vows from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. And in that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. This is all just imagery. I will plant her for myself in the land and I will show my love to the one I called not my lover. And I will say to those who are called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is such a beautiful piece prophetic poetry that shows how the Lord's love for Israel surpasses his desire to react solely with judgment. His relationship with Israel is not like these false gods. He's a loving and merciful husband. He's not a master. His affection weighs more than than, than Israel's unfaithfulness. His affection weighs more than Israel's unfaithfulness. And God says that these punishments All this stuff that's going to happen to Israel is so that he can allure her, woo her back to himself. He will speak, and he's not going to speak harshly, right? An angry husband would speak harshly. He's going to speak tenderly to her. He's going to provide for her vineyards. This is a sign and a symbol of his protection, his provision. And in that day, when this restoration of this marriage happens, Israel will once again call the Lord her husband. And I want to look at three things that we see about this restoration, and then we'll bring it home to us today. Number one, Israel will no longer call God master, but will call him husband. Think about that difference. The bowels are masters. The false gods are masters. Gods who go to and fro, who have to be enticed by these rituals. But the Lord isn't a master. He's a husband. He's a loving husband. He's not pleased by sacrifice or ritual, right? We saw that in Amos last week. That's not what he's pleased by. He's pleased by love. He's pleased by justice. He's pleased by this relationship. And he is a husband to Israel. So Israel will will no longer call God master. It's not going to be that kind of relationship. This is a husband. Number two, God betrothes himself to Israel once again. I want you to look back at verse 19. 
I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. You know that word betroth? Right? We don't do betrothals here. Betrothals? Betrothals? I don't know how to pronounce that. Betrothals? We don't do those here, right? But there are other places in the world where this still happens. Um, And uh, what is that? It's where you make a commitment to one another. And there's there's like a dowry and, and all of that stuff takes place. And here's the Lord restoring his marriage. It's almost like a remarriage is taking place. I did a, um, a wedding, I guess it's been about five or six years now, of a couple who, um, had, gotten, who had been divorced in like the 80s. And they came back together. And it was like in 2016 or something when I did it. Like I did... I just, I got, in co- I don't know how they got in contact with me, but they were like, no, we're, we're back together now, just like, it was such a beautiful picture, right? Like this remarriage. That's what's happening. He, it's like a renewing of the vows, but even more so. The Israel has been unfaithful, and God's going to woo her back, speak tenderly to her, and he's going to renew his commitment. A betrothal, as many of you know, is established by a dowry, right? It's a payment made to the father of the family, for, for, the, for, for the wedding, right, for the bride. And the, this price, God's not going to pay cash, right? He's not going to pay money. He says, I'm going to betroth you with righteousness, with justice, with love, compassion, and faithfulness. This is what the basis of our marriages are. Not works, not good deeds, not things that we do, but things that only God can provide. And finally, number three, he says, you will acknowledge the Lord. Some translations say you will know the Lord. You will know the Lord. And if you think about this whole thing, this whole Hosea story, it's about marriage, right? The whole picture is marriage. Then you might know what the word know means in the Bible, right? When it's talking about marriage. Like that, that, that's, you know, it, it means as in Adam knowing Eve or as in Mary not knowing Joseph before she's you know, when she's conceived Jesus, you know what this is symbolic for? This is a consummation of the marriage between Israel and the Lord. There's an intimate knowledge and grafting together, similar to a husband and wife, that Israel and the Lord have. You're going to know me in an intimate, deep way. Paul would later echo the same sentiment in his letter to Ephesians where he compared he, he says, you know, marriage is really just a picture of the relationship between Christ and his, and his church. That's what marriage is. That's what it's supposed to be, at least, right? That's what he says. And here we have a glimpse of that. So after this, Hosea, he gets his commands from the Lord. So he, Hosea has this message, then he gets the commands. For chapter 3, so the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and she's an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loved the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. I always thought that was funny, that word. <laughs> sacred raisin cake. You can go look what that, up that, what that might mean. It's funny. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. I will behave the same way towards you. So the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without the ephod or household gods. Afterwards, though, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. 
they will come trembling to the Lord and to the blessings of the last days. So Hosea goes to show his love for her, even though she's an adulteress. And God tells Hosea, love her like I love Israel. And it seems that she's in very dire straits. She's become a slave of some sort. He has to go buy her. Like that's how bad she's gotten. He has to go buy her back. He has to purchase her from her masters. And he redeems her. And he tells her to be faithful to him once again. God's discipline is not incompatible with love. God's discipline is not incompatible. In fact, it's a major aspect of his love. It's like a, it's like a big part of it. He disciplines those he loves. And in a, this amazing, peculiar life that Hosea is asked to live, this real-life parable he lived out just to show how scandalous and how crazy and insane and amazing God's love is for his people. Because this doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you tell somebody to do this? Why would anyone do this? Somebody who's, could, who's unfaithful over and over and over and over again. And God says, guess what? That's you. them back and come for them and reignite this relationship and redeem them from slavery, slavery that they themselves are responsible for. Like, they're the ones who put themselves in that position. It's not his fault. It's not his problem, really. But he makes it his problem. This, oh my gosh, this story is, I mean, so he lives out a parable, and then you look at it and you say, this is a parable not just for Israel, but for us as well, the church, correct? Like, don't you, I don't know, I hope you see that. It speaks to us in this day that we are just like Israel. We've committed spiritual adultery time and time and time again. Every time we sin, every time we're disobedient, every time we neglect the Lord, every time we neglect his commands, it's like committing spiritual adultery. And our idols, they're not like false idols like the bowels, like they're not the false gods like that, right? God tells us, you know, we, we think that they're going to give us um, you know, they thought that they were gonna that they were gonna get happiness and meaning and purpose and you know fertility and all these things from their from their uh, from their false gods. And for us, we go to other false gods to get happiness and pleasure and meaning and purpose and money and joy and prosperity and you know whatever we're seeking. Our 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 idols don't have temples or statues in Israel's day like they had in Israel's day, but they look like maybe secret sins or identity issues or finding your identity in work or in your feelings, or in your heart, or in relationships, or in friends, or family, or your husband, or your wife, or your kids. They look like, sometimes it looks like putting politics before Jesus. It looks like overworking, or overspending, or materialism, or seeking joy and pleasure from stuff and from money, rather than your Lord. All those things are idols. And we all struggle with them. John Calvin said that the heart is an idol tower. He's an old uh, theologian and pastor back from the Reformation. He said the heart's an idol factory. Every time we take one down and smash it, our heart just makes another one and puts it right back up. Puts another one. We take it, we smash it, just keeps making idols. We just keep making idols and you have to take them down, you have to keep smashing them. We all struggle with these things and we will continue to, but the Lord is wooing us back. He's alluring us back. Always. He's confronting our faithfulness, not with judgment, but with everlasting love. 
with unyielding, undying, unending faithfulness to us, his adulterous bride. And the really good news is like, like Gomer, there's always another chance. There's always time for the unfaithful wife to come back, to be rescued, to turn from her ways and become faithful to her husband. There's always a chance to flee from the masters that promise love and promise happiness but don't deliver, right? There's always a chance to come to the one who fulfills his promises and keeps his covenant with his people. We need to be redeemed. We're enslaved. Think about that. Romans 6, 6 tells us that, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin may it be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We were slaves to God was willing, like Hosea, to pay to get us back. And it wasn't 15 pieces of silver that he would set us free. It would be the ultimate price, his one and only son. So that's the takeaway I want to leave with you today. Israel's unfaithfulness, it's not enough to exhaust God's, God's great love for them, yes. But even more so, make it personal, your unfaithfulness isn't enough to exhaust God's great love for you. Your unfaithfulness isn't enough to exhaust God's great love for you. Ask the band to come back up as we close. No matter how many times, no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how deep in sin you think you've fallen, no matter how uh, far gone you think you are, they don't know, they could never know, they would never accept, God would never accept me. God does know. He knows you. All you need to do is put your faith in him. Come back. He's wooing you right now. He knows you. Come back. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us. Even though we're unfaithful, we continue to be unfaithful. We sin. We mess up. We fall. But you are faithful. Your discipline is meant to lead to restoration. Even when we have consequences for our sin, those things are meant to lead us to be restored in our relationship. So thank you, Lord, for your restoration, your love, your undying mercy for us. 